you would uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. And we will be in verse 1 of Luke chapter 7. And once you are there, if you could please stand and join me for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 7, verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a slave who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his slave. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built our synagogue. And Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my child be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And I say to my slave, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found that the servant was well. This is the word of the Lord. You guys may be seated. As we open now in chapter 7 of Luke's Gospel, and we begin our time together tonight, I just want to put out in front of you the thesis statement of what we're going to be looking at. The title of this study is Anatomy of Faith. Anatomy of Faith. And in these verses, these 10 verses at the beginning of chapter 7, we're going to take a look together at the anatomy of the faith of the centurion. And by extension, we're going to be looking at the anatomy of your own faith and your own condition. And we're going to be asking the question, is this a healthy faith or an unhealthy faith? And as we look at the centurion and you look at yourself, we're going to be asking that same question the whole time. What is the anatomy of the faith that is present in the person? By way of introduction, I want to remind you, Luke chapter 7 follows Luke chapter 6. And in Luke chapter 6, we spent a great deal of time examining the full teachings and the sayings of our Lord. That is where we get, in Luke's gospel, the most extended portion of any one single teaching. It's not a collection of loose parables. It's one continuous sermon all the way from the beginning of the Beatitudes all the way to the close of chapter 6. And as soon as he finishes describing what his disciples are like and what his followers are like and what it is like to be part of the kingdom of God, as soon as he finishes describing all of those DNA tests, all of those characteristics, you'll notice at the beginning of chapter 7 and verse 1, he has quite a great crowd following him. He has people who are walking with him from this town, and uh, it, it's right at the termination of this sermon that he turns and he goes to Capernaum. And it's at this moment in time, right when the disciples and all the followers of Jesus are hot on his heels following after him, that in John's gospel we get Jesus sifting through those people. In John's gospel is when he preaches and he tells them this very hard teaching about eating his flesh and drinking his blood and where many turn away from following him. 
And it's at that same moment in time in Luke's gospel where we get this, uh, this otherwise dividing story of the centurion's faith. Now, you might ask the question on the front end, what is so divisive for a Jewish person about this story? Well, we as Gentile readers thousands of years later aren't as offended by this story. But if you're a, a Jewish person and you're following after Jesus and you're his disciple and you believe Christ to be the Messiah of, the Israel's, of Israel's people, if you believe him to be the Christ, the Savior, then really you understand that Savior to be primarily for the Jews. And here we encounter Jesus not healing or interacting with a Jewish person. In fact, every run-in he's had with a Jewish official thus far has gone very poorly. It's had a very negative outcome. Here, when we run into an official, it's not a Jew, it's a Gentile. And it's not only a Gentile, it's a Gentile serving with the Roman people who are occupying Israel. And this is the individual that Jesus encounters and engages with. And so that is what is so divisive about these events. So keeping that background in mind, let's work through these verses and examine what is it that's so special about what Jesus sees in this man's faith? What is it that causes Jesus to be amazed and wonder at the faith of this centurion? To start, I want you to see with me the first thing about his faith is that it demonstrates need. And all healthy faith demonstrates that need. You'll see that in verse 2. He says, Now a centurion had a servant who was sick unto the point of death. And this servant, this slave, was a valuable servant to the centurion. And the problem is that the centurion has a slave who's sick, and the centurion can't help him. The, ser- the, the slave is almost dead. He's almost at the point of death. The centurion is in desperation, in great need, when he encounters Jesus. And when he hears about Jesus, and when he sends people as his ambassadors to Jesus, he's demonstrating need. And without the presence of need, without the presence of a lack of something, you cannot actually exercise faith unto something else. You can think about the presence of need in this case as a desperation caused by circumstance. And often need could be driven by circumstance. But also need could be driven by a poverty of spirit, a bankruptcy morally, a need for salvation under the awareness of sinfulness. In the condition of need is where we have the opportunity for faith. When you have need present, you can exercise Faith. Need is a necessary prerequisite for faith. It's the very thing that the Pharisees have that they won't acknowledge that they have. It's the very thing that Judas had and he misidentified what would complete his need. It's the very thing that you and I also have. And depending on how we address our need and where we take our need will determine whether our faith is healthy or unhealthy. It will determine the health of our faith. What do you do with your need? Where does your need go? When you realize you're lacking and at want, where's the first place that you run to to address that need? In the case of the centurion, as soon as he hears about Jesus, he sends ambassadors to him. He sends people who have reputation and hopefully pull in the community to go on his behalf to encounter Jesus. And many of us, when we hear about Jesus, We still keep him in our toolbox somewhere deep down buried, away from the front lines of our needs. And if we pray, when we pray, if we ever go to Jesus, it's usually a last-ditch desperation kind of effort. Not so with the centurion. He's certainly desperate, 
But there's no indication that he's exhausted all his other attempts before he goes to Jesus. It tells us in the text, as soon as he hears about Jesus, he goes. And the centurion is to be commended in this regard. Where he takes his need tells us about the condition of his faith. To be clear, the centurion has need. The disciples also have need. All the followers of Jesus have needs. Some of them manifest in many different ways. Some of them manifest in terms of their sin condition, their shortcomings. For every single person on this planet, it manifests in that way. But some of us have greater needs for Christ. Some of us need physical healing. Some of us need liberation from our emotional burdens that we carry week in and week out. We have needs that others might not carry. And depending on where we take those needs or how needful we consider ourselves to be, might inform how healthy or unhealthy our faith is. It tells us about our heart and about what we believe in when we exercise our faith in the presence of our desperation. In the case of the centurion, you'll notice how consistent and precise that desperation is. In this passage, not once but twice, he sends an envoy of people to Jesus on his behalf. He recognizes his need. And yet, every time he identifies it, he takes it to Christ. So where do you take your need when you have it? When you recognize the need that is present in your own life, whatever that might be, where do you take it? Who's the first person you run to? Prayer is a wonderful thing, but it's often, for many of us, a last-ditch kind of effort, a bailout option, but not a primary defense. And I want to challenge that assumption because I think that if you're like me in any regard, that's your natural inclination. It's to save prayer way behind the lines of our efforts. Often we exercise our own personal attempts to overcome the needs that we see. We become anxious, we work, we labor, we wrestle, we are, uh, we are warriors. And we often neglect prayer and engage in all these other activities which cost us time, effort, energy, and they tell us about what we do with our needs, what we do with our desires. And we can look to the centurion as an example of what we ought to do. The kind of faith that causes Jesus to marvel. Not only does his faith have need, you'll also notice in the anatomy of this faith, there's a humility present. There's a component of humility, and you'll see it there in verse 6. The first envoy that he sends in verse 5 are Jews who are laboring on his behalf, saying he is worthy of all of the things that he's going to request of you. He's a man who loves our nation. He loves our people. And he has no good reason to. He's a person who has no need for the Jewish people. And nevertheless, he has taken it upon himself to invest financially into them, to build a synagogue for them. And he's taken to loving these people that he's in charge of and responsible for. So much so that the Jewish people, as hostile as they are to Gentiles, are laboring on his behalf to Jesus. Think about how amazing that is. And with all of that background in display, the second envoy that the centurion sends, the centurion that now is going to once again petition of the Lord, he starts off by saying, don't trouble yourself. I'm not even worthy for you to come into my house. Under the background of him saying, uh, not, not him saying, but other people on his behalf saying he is worthy, you'll notice he starts off with a component of humility saying he is not worthy. The centurion has a more accurate assessment. No one is worthy of this kind of healing. No one is worthy of the Lord coming and serving them. 
But nevertheless, it's a striking humility statement where he could have said, Jesus, would you heal my servant because I've invested so heavily into your chosen people? You as a rabbi certainly know the peril that the people of Israel are in. I have taken care of these people. On the basis of that merit, would you not heal my servant? And he doesn't take any of that to the table with our Lord. Instead, boasting in nothing, he says, don't even trouble yourself to come under my roof. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to touch you, to interact with you, to speak with you face to face. I'm not worthy. It's a striking demonstration of humility. To contrast that with later in Luke's gospel where Jesus tells us a parable about two men, a tax collector and a Pharisee, one who enters the temple saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the Pharisee, the leader of the Jewish people, who actually says, Lord, thank you that you have made me worthy, that I am not like any of these other people, that I'm worthy of your forgiveness, that I'm worthy of your respect. The Pharisee who has no presence of humility and a total demonstration of pride as contrasted with this Gentile leader, the centurion, who demonstrates utter humility in the presence of our Lord. It's an amazing contrast that Luke is drawing out for us. Remember, that does not surprise us because Luke's whole mission in this gospel and in the book of Acts is to argue the case that Jesus is the deliverer and savior of the Jewish people. He's their Messiah. But he's also the savior of the whole human race. That's what he starts with in the genealogy in Luke chapter 3. That's what he continues arguing. And here, when he demonstrates a centurion, when he presents to us a Roman official, he demonstrates him in a positive light. Also at the hour of the crucifixion in Luke 23, Luke demonstrates a centurion declaring the righteousness of Jesus. Another positive demonstration of the Gentile people. And it's Luke writing Acts in Acts chapter 10 who demonstrates that the gospel goes forth even unto the centurions through the preaching of Peter. Luke demonstrates the Gentile people in a very favorable light all throughout his gospel. And the reason I point that out is because if you're a Jewish person in the first century reading these texts, you would scoff at the idea that a Gentile could be humble before Yahweh. A Gentile has no concept of Yahweh. Why could he be humble before him? And nevertheless, in the absence of a robust theology of the Old Testament, in the absence of a great concept of the Psalms, this Gentile leader, when presented with who Jesus is, demonstrates a remarkable response of faith. And how do you explain that in the absence of that knowledge, apart from the movement of the Spirit to soften hearts and to change lives? It's impossible to explain otherwise. The people who have the most information access, the Pharisees, are the coldest in response. And many of the people who have the least amount of information present for them demonstrate such a great response to the gospel. It's an amazing contrast that Luke draws for us. But moving back to the point, the anatomy of faith not only has a presence of need, it not only has a presence of humility, but you'll notice also the confidence with which he approaches our Lord. You'll notice that he, he recognizes his need, he approaches the Lord humbly with his request, and then in verse 7, he says this profound theological statement. He says, therefore, I'm not worthy, therefore, I did not presume to come to you. I did not count myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and allow my servant to be healed. Simply speak and permit that my servant would be healed. Now, if you think about that, 
and you think about all of the theological implications of what was just stated, you can recognize how much confidence the centurion has just placed in Christ Jesus. What he's just said is that the words of Jesus have authority to release his slave from the grips of death. Remember, the slave comes to us in the condition of being at the brink of death, being at the precipice of dying. And then when he approaches Jesus, he says, say the word and allow it to change. Allow the condition to resolve itself. What confidence he puts in Jesus. Once again, to contrast that with the Pharisees who scoff at Jesus and say, do this for us and do a miracle for us and show us a sign that we may know that you are who you say you are. They've heard the stories, same as the centurion. They're operating off the same kind of information. And yet the centurion responds in one way, with a healthy faith. And the Pharisees and many of the Jewish people respond in an unhealthy way, with an unhealthy faith. You'll notice this confidence is not rooted in, in midair. It's planted firmly upon the theology that we have been building throughout the entire Old Testament. The centurion articulates more accurately the God of the Old Testament and confidence in him than any of the people who have much of the Old Testament committed to their memory. I just want to take you through a few verses that demonstrates the kind of grounds the centurion would have for saying this. Not, and I'm not assuming that he knows these verses, but what I'm saying is this is an obvious understanding of who God is if you read the Old Testament. So let's turn just to a couple of verses. First, I would like to go to Psalm 107. And we will be in uh, verse 20 of Psalm 107. That's where the, the verse is. But Psalm 107 builds on the history of Israel. And it articulates a few things. You don't need to turn there, but in the first stanza of Psalm 107, the argument from the psalmist is that we ought to give thanks to the Lord for he is good. That's his thesis statement. And by the time you get to verse 20 of Psalm 107, he's made the argument that despite all of the people's failings, all of the people's shortcomings, all of the people being foolish in their sinful ways, nevertheless, what the Lord does in verse 20, he sends out his word and he heals them and he delivered them from their destruction. The psalmist has claimed that Israel was not worthy of the healing, but God sent out his word from afar and he caused them to be healed by his graces. The centurion has said much the same kind of thing. The centurion articulating it probably independently of ever having read this psalm recognizes the same truth about God. Now you might be saying, well, this psalmist is talking about Yahweh, the God of Israel, and the centurion is talking about Jesus Christ. And that's right. It's the same connection. They both have access to the same power because they are one and the same in nature. The centurion has identified something about Christ Jesus that not the disciples, have, the disciples haven't seen, the Jewish people haven't seen, the Pharisees have refused to make this connection, and yet the centurion is pleased to observe this because he's observing plainly, without bias, about who Jesus Christ is. Now another verse I would like to turn to to see this same kind of confidence that he would have, the same kind of profound faith that he's uh, describing, Turn with me to Exodus 15, verse 26. 
The centurion is articulating something that he probably has no idea how interlaced with Scripture it is. Verse 26 of Exodus 15 says this. This is God speaking. He says, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in His eyes, and give ear to His commandments, and keep all of His statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord, your healer. I am the Lord, your healer. God, personally revealing himself to the people of Israel, identifies himself as their healer God. And the centurion, when with a simple statement of faith, has articulated the same kind of truth. Speak the word, Jesus, and he will be healed. Speak the word and permit him to be healed. And here in Exodus, the rich truth of God being the healer of his people. The centurion is speaking well beyond his education in theology. But to turn back to the text in Luke 7. Not only does the centurion say this profound truth, he says, but say the word and let my slave be healed. Not only does he say that, but he also goes on to explain what he means. Not only does he put confidence in Jesus, he also is going to articulate an even deeper detail as much as he is able to with his own understanding and with his own background information. He's going to articulate how he thinks Jesus exactly has the authority to do this thing. And you'll see that in verse 8. It's a simple but not a simplistic understanding of theology. Verse 8, For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And I say to my slave, do this, and he does it. The centurion, in a short little illustration, is making an argument from the lesser to the greater. What he's arguing is that I understand, Jesus, how your power works. And I'm going I'm to compare it to this. I also have authority. And how my authority works is when I tell people beneath me to do things, they do them. I tell one go and he goes. To, I tell another one come here and he comes. I tell someone do this and they do it because they're under my authority. Now back up to verse 7 and notice what the centurion is saying. He's saying that Jesus has authority to heal his servant from death. And in that case, if you take that same illustration to verse 8, you'll notice what he's saying. He's saying, Jesus, I understand that you are a man who has authority. And when you say, not to a soldier, when you say to death itself, go away, it goes. And when you say to life come, it comes. And when you say to creation do this, creation does it. It's a simple theology, but it's not a simplistic theology. It has profound ramifications all throughout the created order. And we would exhaust our time tonight if we tried to explore every avenue and crevice in which Scripture affirms the words of the centurion. And that would just be in the Old Testament. Not even speaking to the affirm affirmations of this in the New Testament. Just in the Old Testament, that what the centurion has just said is that Jesus is over creation in his authority. And when Jesus speaks and says things, all of creation moves and bends and flexes in order to get in line with what Jesus has said. The centurion says, I get it. I have authority, and I command my authority, and people obey it. Jesus, I understand you too have authority, 
And when you say things, everything under your authority moves and obeys your authority perfectly. Even including death itself would yield if you caused it to yield. If you spoke the word from a distance, not even in close contact, you could pause death if you desire to. And you could reverse the condition of my slave and you could cause him to be well again. Because Jesus has authority over life and death. That's the argument. Simple, but not simplistic. And you'll notice that the whole Old Testament affirms that character of Yahweh God. It affirms this testimony of the centurion. And there's many places we could look. But before we look to the theological high points of this, of this truth, I would like to turn to one other Old Testament person who we have who articulates a similar kind of truth. 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel is one of the historical books. It comes right after the giving of the law. And in 1 Samuel 2, we find ourselves another pious servant of our God who's also in a needful condition, who also recognizes their need, who also approaches God in confidence. And when God responds to them by causing their prayer to be heard, this is the theological statement that Hannah makes when she recognizes God's character. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6. The Lord kills and the Lord brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. Verse 7, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. Hannah, no formal theological education, no robust study of the Torah, a simple Jewish woman has articulated the truth of what we would later call the sovereignty of God. That's the theological term for what we're discussing here, the sovereignty of God. The centurion has said it, although he probably couldn't tell you that that's what he said. Hannah has stated that God has sovereignty over both life and death. Neither of them with formal theological educations, but nevertheless articulating profound truths about who God is. Now, if you think about that, you would, you would think that Scripture affirms so the sovereignty of God all over the place. In every nook and cranny of Scripture, you can see this. So I would just like to turn to a handful of verses that articulate this truth as well. The first one is actually in Job chapter 38. In Job chapter 38, God is speaking about his own sovereignty. And we can consider God a very trustworthy source on how his sovereignty works. Job chapter 38, and we will be in verse 35, just one verse. God is interacting with Job and making a defense for his decisions. And his defense is, I'm God and you're not. And evidence number one that he brings to the table is verse 35. He asks Job this question, verse 35, can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, we are here? God is saying that lightning obeys him in the same way the centurion has said his soldiers obey him. Remember, the centurion says, I tell my soldier to go and he goes, to come and he comes. And here God says about lightning, he says, are you in a position, Job, where you can tell lightning to go and it goes or come and it sits at your feet and asks if it can go places? 
Are you in that kind of position? Sovereignty of God on display in the book of Job. And the next place I'd like to turn to see the same truth is Psalm 33. And there's two verses in Psalm 33 that speak to this truth. Both of them very close to one another. We will be in verse 6 of Psalm 33. Psalm 33, verse 6 says this, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all of their host. Look down at verse 9. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. Psalm 33 is a retelling of what is true in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and a truth that is affirmed on every single page of Scripture, both implicitly and explicitly, throughout the entire Old Testament and affirmed in the New Testament, that God is wholly sovereign over every single part of creation. There's nothing that escapes His gaze. There's nothing that escapes His sovereign, ruling control. Life and death are God's to command. Health and poverty and wealth are all God's to command. Sickness sits at the foot of God and is given permission to go or to return. God is sovereign over every single aspect of his creation. And that sovereignty is not because it was given to God. It's because God created all of the things that you and I know. He created it by his words. He still commands it by his words. He upholds the whole entire universe by the word of his power. By him, all things were made. And without him, not anything would have been made that has been made. God is sovereign over every single part of creation. And the centurion, unknowingly, and in a much more plain, lay kind of way, has articulated that truth. He has said, remember in verse 7 of uh, Luke chapter 7, I say the word to you, and my servant will be healed. My servant who's on the brink of death. And I know this because you're an authority figure over death itself. And death will return if you tell death to return. You would think that this kind of theology would come from the mouth of a learned scribe and a scholar of the Israelite people. Someone who studied the whole Old Testament, has committed the Torah to memory. No, no, no. It doesn't come from someone who's learned. It comes from someone who's willing to see reality plainly as it is. And that's good news for us because you and I are never going to be as learned as the Pharisees were in the first century. We're never going to know as much of the Torah as they did. We're never going to have as many of the laws memorized. We're not going to adhere to those laws as well as they did. We're not going to be as religiously proficient as they are. But the good news is, is it's not actually that's not actually going to move the needle for us as to whether we can understand God's sovereignty or not. Because it's a simple truth, but not a simplistic truth. It's not complex. It's simple. It's a plain truth. And nevertheless, it is profound in that it extends into every reach and void of our lives. Why is this a part of his anatomy of faith? That for the centurion, he has, remember, a need. And he identifies his need and he says, you know where I need to take my need? To a sovereign God who can deal with it. And you know what? I don't only have a need, 
I recognize that if God is sovereign and holy, that I am less than worthy of him completing this for me. I don't deserve him to intervene on my behalf. And nevertheless, I'm going to with humility approach him and appeal to him not on my earnings, of which I have plenty to boast in, but I'm going to appeal to him simply on his character for him to do this. And I'm going to appeal to him with confidence. And I'm going to appeal to him with a simple, profound statement of truth. Notice the health of the faith of the centurion who recognizes his need and takes it straight to a God who can take care of it. And the reason I want to focus on the faith of the centurion is because when Jesus observes all of these things, notice his response. Nowhere else in all of the rest of the scriptures is the word uh, amazement used about Jesus to describe his response to any other person. What he says here in the text is that he marveled at the centurion. He was awestruck at the faith of the centurion. Not that he was surprised. He's sovereign. He knows it all. But he nevertheless marvels at the centurion. And he says, when looking at the centurion and then turning to all those people who've been following him, he says this, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Not even in Israel have I found such faith. That's amazing. He's met John the Baptist in Israel. He's met Mary, his mother, in Israel. He's met Joseph, his father, in Israel, both of who agreed to be part of a virgin birth that they couldn't have understood. Not in Israel have I found such faith, but among this Gentile leader, I have found this faith. And you might be saying, what's Jesus doing when he's commending the centurion? What's the purpose of that statement? He's recommending that all of the people who are following him be like this. If you were uh, educated or, or, or taught the, the, the art of uh, maintaining a classroom, one of the things that they'll tell you very quickly is you shouldn't use negative reinforcement to tell someone what to and what not to do. You shouldn't call out negative behaviors, but instead, the trick is to call out all the positive behaviors that you see. And Jesus is doing something very similar. In the same way that if I was managing my classroom and I see a student working, I would say, great job, Johnny. Do your homework. Way to go. And I say that in the presence of all my other students. What I'm doing is I'm telling all of them implicitly, hey, do what he's doing. Be like that. That's a model of what to do right now in this space. And Jesus is doing much the same. All of these followers are after him. They've heard his teaching. They're all his disciples. They're on board. And the first person he bumps into that models perfectly what he's just been describing, he turns to his followers and he says, look at the centurion. Look at how he is demonstrating faith. I want you to observe what the centurion has done. And I want you to look at that, and I want you to follow that kind of example. He marvels at him. He turns to his crowd, and he says, I have found such a great faith in this man. That's quite a commendation. It takes Peter a couple more chapters before he gets to this kind of state. It takes many people their entire lifetimes before they get here. And many people never reach this position of faith. But the centurion has such a faith, such a profound faith that Jesus would willing, be willing to turn to his crowd and say, this is an example, a model of what to be like. And to drive that one step further, he validates the faith of the centurion. He confirms 
every suspicion, every hope, every desire, every need that the centurion had, and he deals with it. It's almost a footnote at the end of this section. At this point, we're so expectant of Jesus to do these things, it's no longer the climactic point of the story. There was a time when we were holding our breath to see if Jesus would heal the hand of the man who needs to be healed on the Sabbath. And we were holding our breath to see if he would really be able to take that paralyzed man and cause him to be up and walk. At this point, in Luke's gospel, it's a footnote. Closing verse, closing action of what's to happen. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. What more could you expect? He's sovereign God. He's consistent. He does these things almost without effort. It's almost boring. It's so consistent. And yet it should not be boring. Because that closing verse, that they find the servant well, is the hinge upon which all the other faith determines. It's, on, it's the hinge on which it all turns. Because if the servant is not found well when they go home, everything else is an example not of a wonderful, healthy, robust faith. It's an example of a foolish and ill-sighted and poor faith that is based on myth and legend rather than factual reality. If the servant is not well, if what Jesus says does not happen, then these people and this centurion are fools for having approached Jesus. And they're found out to be fools. But they are not found out to be fools. They are confirmed in their faith. Because when they go home, the servant is healthy. He's doing well. Everything that the centurion needed is satisfied in Jesus. And Jesus, in doing so, not by praying to God first, but simply by commanding that this would happen, is found to be one and the same of the same power that God commands. Because this, this healing power, as we've seen in the Old Testament, is reserved for Yahweh. He is the one who says he is the healer of his people. He is the one who is sovereign over all creation. He is the one who commands life and death. And yet in this verse, and in these verses, it's Jesus who commands life and death. It's Jesus who, by his words, causes life and death and sickness and health to move and sway and bend to his reality. And that's a profound thing. You see, as Christians 2,000 years removed from the happenings of these events, we almost import our assumptions into the text and we say, of course this is going to happen. Of course Jesus is going to do this. Of course he's God. No one's questioning that. But if you're a reader of Luke's gospel, you are. Remember, Theophilus is concerned about his faith. Luke writes this gospel to confirm that Theophilus' faith is not a shakable faith. It's not a questionable faith. It's a firmly rooted faith. Theophilus, I write these things to you so that you may have certainty about the things which you have been told. And here, Luke is once again laying another piece of evidence at our feet to tell us that we too can have confidence, like Theophilus had confidence, that God is who he said he was, and the Messiah is Jesus Christ. And that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, at this point, is not just reserved for the Israelites. Now he's moved out. He's expanded his mission into the centurion's home, into the world of the Gentiles. And this is a motif that gets picked up, and it's going to be carried along 
It's going to be carried by the early church, and it's going to be carried to the point where you and I, thousands of years later, are not Jewish people, and yet we have the gospel. Because Jesus was pleased to be the Savior of not only His people, but also of the entire world. In Acts chapter 10, the conclusion is that there is no partiality with God. Peter concludes this when the centurion receives the Spirit. Peter says that there's no partiality with God. Truly, I see that if you're a God-fearer in any nation, God will honor you. And that's what is present here even early in Jesus' ministry. And it's amazing how used to that truth we are and how quickly we gloss over it. It's amazing how in all these verses we are so used to Jesus simply doing what he said he would do. But who else do you know in your life that delivers as consistently as Jesus does? And pause for a moment and think, where else could you possibly take your needs? Possibly take your shortcomings? Where else could you possibly go that could consistently deal with your needs and with your shortcomings? as Jesus can consistently deal with your needs and with your shortcomings. Nowhere else. A lot of people look at God's sovereignty and they think about it as a dangerous thing that's difficult for us to defend in the presence of unbelievers. Because if God is truly sovereign, then evil is something that might be a problem for us to defend. How could God be good and sovereign in a broken world? And yet, to whom else would sovereignty rightly belong? No one else has wisdom like God has wisdom. No one else has power like God has power. And no one else is better suited and better prepared to handle sovereignty than God is. It is good news for you and for I that God is a sovereign God. Because if he is sovereign, and I believe in these verses we found out that he is in fact sovereign, then we can follow in the example of the centurion. When he was found to be uh, confirmed in his faith, when his needs were dealt with, we too can follow that example and we can say that we want to be like the centurion, to take our needs before God who can deal with it because God is able to handle whatever we throw before him. And it's not just limited to sickness and healing. It's It's not limited in any capacity. He can deal with sin. He can deal with shame. He can deal with guilt. He can deal with healing if that is the case. He can deal with almost every need that we could possibly come up with because he's the one who created the world in perfection and he can once again restore it to perfection. And you might ask the question, well, how could he restore this broken world to perfection? How is it possible that when sin entered the world, it could go out again? How is it possible that God could deal with the broken world that we see before us? Well, it doesn't come without a cost. The broken world is not restored simply by the wave of the hand and the forgetting of old things. Sin is a real problem in the world. Brokenness and fallenness in human nature is a real, ingrained, rooted thing. It's not something that we do and participate in sometimes. It's not some vague idea that's out there in the world and it can get into us if we're not careful. It's in each and every one of us. So much so that scripture would say that all people are like this, short in this way. There is not a single person, no matter what religion you were raised in, no matter how righteous you live, no matter how good you are at this moment in time, there's not one single person who stands a part of their need for this restoration. And to whom could we take that great of a need to? To whom could we go that could restore this? Well, we could take it to the one who, in fact, did restore it, 
who did deal with the problem. Because when God looks at the sin condition of humanity, he's not, he's not impartial. He looks at humanity and he, he loves this fallen world so much that he sends his one and only son, the perfect son, into the world to take on the place of the world and to take the punishment of the world for sin. And he doesn't do so with some vague general concept hoping that people will be saved. He does so by simply laying down his life on the cross and saying that it is now confirmed to be finished. The cross accomplished all that it set out to accomplish. Jesus, when he was crucified, declares his victory on the tree. And he says that all of the things that were broken in this world, all of the things that are short, are now dealt with in my body on the tree. And so when we have need like the centurion, when we have need greater than the centurion, we can take it to someone who can deal with the need. Because the broken world is restored in Christ. Fallen creation is once again made new in Christ, who will be the Lord and ruler over that creation. And so it's a good thing that he's sovereign now because he'll be sovereign forever. And it's a good thing that he restores us because if he did not restore us, we would be justly condemned in our sins. And so if we recognize our need, if we recognize our shortcomings, there's only one place to take it. There's only one person to go to. The one who sits as our advocate in the, with the Father. The one whom John talks about when he says, if you sin, if you struggle with sin, if you've committed sin, don't worry. We have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous, who will bear the wrath of God for us. He is the propitiation, the wrath bearer for our sin. And he does so at his own expense. This is not some costless event that occurs. This is his life laid down in our place. And we're not there yet in Luke's gospel. We'll get there. But when the crucifixion takes place, there's so much being accomplished in that moment. So we can't rush to get there. We have to see the need of humanity. We have to see the fallenness of our own sin. We have to see the broken condition of Israel. And we have to recognize that Jesus, when he dies on the cross, doesn't do so as a footnote to the events. That is the, the pinnacle of all of human history. And when he dies on the cross, he doesn't stay dead. He gets right back out of the grave a few days later. And he walks around confirming the fact that this payment did satisfy God. That the beef that God had with humanity is now dealt with. That the sin debt that you and I owe to God is taken care of. And when we doubt that, we can go back to the same God whom we had our needs with in the first place. And we can go back to his cross and back to his throne. And we can be reminded of the fact that it is, in fact, finished. And that's actually what we do every single week when we are taking communion. We are reminding ourselves of the fact that it is finished, not by some magic that we don't understand, but by the body and the blood of our Lord, spilled and broken on our behalf for our sin. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and we praise you for your word. God, you are so good to your broken people. You are so consistently just, so consistently righteous, that as we encounter your words and we see your truth, we can do nothing but respond as we ought to, with humility and adoration and awe. Lord, give us such a quality of faith as the centurion has. Give us the ability to recognize our need 
and give us grace to take it to you. Lord, we can do nothing of our own accord. There is no merit or worth in each and every one of us, but Lord, it is on the merit of Jesus Christ, the righteous, who dies in our place, that we can approach your throne. Lord, we thank you for that sacrifice. We are eternally grateful and we long, we long to praise you for that sacrifice, Lord, because we did not deserve it and we would never be able to pay it back. So the only thing we can do is praise your name. Amen.